Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kaveh. I'm Lizzie. Lizzie, I'm so glad you're back. You were gone last week. How did that local theater reenactment of the 1996 film, The Craft, go? Um, I won uh, an Emmy or something. I don't, I don't think that's I'm how really... it works in local theater. Oh, I don't sh- think that's oh sorry. I was pretty sure that's how it worked. I like the two episodes I've been away for recently. Once you were trying to fill the Lizzie hole. Mm-hmm. Very hard and then to do. The other... It's a big gaping <laughs> hole. If we're being honest, it's a lot of space to fill. That doesn't make me sound attractive. <laughs> um, and the other one, I was Nev Campbell, so that's pretty good. We yeah, have to think doing... about. You were playing Nev Campbell's role in the movie The Craft. All I heard was Lizzie. You look just like Nev Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I heard. That was my celebrity um, doppelganger. So thank you... you. So, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing good. The smoke has cleared, um, so the outside world is more accessible, which is great. Um, you know, RBG is still dead, so that's a bummer. Um, yep. So, you know, there's some ups and downs in the world, and, uh, you know, it's very sweet to hear about um, the memorials and the and the honor honoring of RBG that people are doing to her memory. And um, I don't know. It's kind of moving and sad, and, um, you know, that's, that's, that's what's happening in the world right now. Did you, um, did you look up to her? And did you? I mean, I know every, we all of us kind of do idolize her. Everyone, I, I think, a lot of people do. Yeah. But I mean, did you think you had a particular um, affection for her? I had this weird. She looked just like one of my grandmas, and she was from Brooklyn, New York. So the way she talked had like a lot of uh, nostalgia and affection, yeah. you know. And in the last few years, I've consumed all the RBG stuff. Um, the basis of sex was the dramatic film, dramatized film, um, and then the notorious RBG was the documentary. So I have, you know, um, in the last four or five years, just been consuming all things RBG. I think just like the rest of America. So I'd like to think that people across the country, not just any polarized side has uh, some emotion attached to to her, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool what she's done, what she did, really. It's a real bummer. That one yeah. that one hurt. Not all celebrity deaths b- 
bother me that much if I'm being honest. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the people in any meaningful way, but um, that that one that one hurt. And even even though it was not unexpected, I mean, we heard she was right. she was getting ERCPs this this procedure called an endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, which I'm assuming was being done for some sort of cancer. I don't know her, right. her medical history, but I'm assuming right. in her case, it was being done for cancer. So I, right. I, I knew she wasn't great. Um, things weren't going well, but still, even that being said, it did hurt. Right. And something you said in the last episode, I've vocalized and I've thought about a lot, but it makes me feel guilty that people might feel some sort of anger, hostility, or resentment towards her for not having retired during Obama's yeah. administration. And I totally, I've thought it and again, talked about it, but I just, I can't even, I don't like saying it or thinking about it, but you know, there yeah. is that. Um, it doesn't diminish her, her role and her voice and, um, you know, as the kind of the great dissenter, but, um, you know, that is how she found her voice was when she became kind of the only woman on the bench for a few years and the most progressive, the most liberal, which isn't how she started out. She became that way because the bench got more conservative and she found her voice as a dissenter. And it's just a really interesting, you know, uh, career she's had and, uh, and an amazing legacy. Anyway. <laughs> well, speaking of strong women that I believe can be role models. Coming up next is uh, Miranda Yaver. She is a uh, political scientist. She's written for New York Times, Washington Post. She writes a lot about that intersection of women's health and public policy. So we have a lot of things to talk to her about, uh, including the story of forced sterilizations and how COVID might be affecting uh, women's health care rights in this country. Um, before we do that, quick shout outs. Uh, first, shout out to Ryan Marino. Thank you for um, pinch hitting when uh, Lizzie was out. It was a lot of fun having you on. New rule, if you've been a guest on the show twice, you get to be a co-host. So all you prior uh, guests, keep that in mind. Thank you to Nadim for helping us get these episodes out. Anyone else you want to thank, Lizzie? Just to our listeners, more enticement that you would be my co-host with me, not with Kaveh. That's if right. you come on our show. Uh, so. Eventually, I will do something that requires me to leave my house. That will happen at some point. And when that happens, there's a good chance Lizzie will need a co-host to step in for me. It um, is true. It is true. I do like leaving the house more than Kave. Yeah. Um, God bless you for it. Anyways, stay tuned, people. We have a great episode coming up. And as always, if you want to reach us, find us at Twitter at the House of Pod. Email us at hopquestions at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook as well. And we look forward to chatting with you guys soon. And welcome back. Today we have political scientist, postdoctoral scholar in health policy and management at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA, and a fellow fan of the Golden State Warriors, Miranda Yaver. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Miranda. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. I just want uh, you to know you also put on your uh, on your website that you're a Yankees fan, so that's great. That we've got like, Yankees and Warriors, and you know. Well, I grew up in the Bay, in the East Bay, um, and then I went to grad school in New York, and I was I stayed in the New York area until 2019, so I could walk to Yankees games and went to a lot of them, and it was fun. And also, like growing up a San Francisco Giants fan, moving to Los Angeles, it was much easier to double down on the Yankees than yeah, the Giants. Definitely. <laughs> The first thing to, to discuss is the forced sterilization story. 
So uh, for anyone who hasn't heard of it yet, the long and the short of it is there's an ICE detention center in Georgia um, and a uh, nurse came forward as a whistleblower um, citing what's been described as forced uh, sterilization. It's a pretty shocking story. And that is not something I say lightly in 2020. Um, The detainees have uh, reported these forced sterilizations. And this whistleblower, Don Wooten, a registered nurse, came forward to describe some of these, or what she's heard at least, because it doesn't sound like she witnessed them firsthand, but there was a lot of reports of them. It's being investigated now by the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and their internal watchdog group. But can you tell us a little bit about what you know about this story so far, particularly just to start with, does it seem to carry validity? Yeah, so there there are a few things that I think are are worth emphasizing. So, you know, one of the things that that has been documented is essentially um, someone was talking with women in this detention center and they realized that they had undergone gynecologic procedures uh, basically without informed consent. They didn't really have a good sense of what procedure they had had even after the surgery or some some of them uh, there was a 29 year old woman who had gone in for a procedure for ovarian cysts and that was in all they told her you're going to have a procedure for this when she woke up she found out they had removed a fallopian tube and the only way that she could conceive would be through ivf Um, there was another woman who went in for a procedure for ovarian cysts who then woke up with three incisions and there was no documentation of her surgery. So she didn't even know what she had had. And so there, there are some similarities, which I think even, um, uh, is, are striking. Um, there's also the fact that this is a detention center that had been subject to a lot of complaints that were not specific to, to hysterectomies, to, to sterilization procedures, but a lot of lack of medical care, inadequate medical care, um, overcrowding, unsanitary conditions. So even if there are details of the story that don't um, end up, you know, holding up. There are a lot of problems that have been um, that have been reported about this facility. And lastly, this idea of mass uh, of of, un, uh, of sterilization without consent is unfortunately not an, as novel a concept as we would like to. I, I don't want to say as we would like to think that it is, because <laughs> no one wants to think about this at all. Right. But but this is this would not be the first time that this has happened. Um, between night in the night between the 1920s the 1970s, over 70, about 70,000 Americans with mental illness and developmental disabilities were sterilized. There's a famous 1927 Supreme Court decision of Buck v. Bell, uh, which uh, basically said that this was not unconstitutional. And what uh, some people sometimes forget is that Buck v. Bell has never been um, technically overturned. And so this is probably going to be the, as far as I know, the first um, Supreme Court confirmation proceeding where questions about modern Supreme Court confirmation proceeding where questions about Buck v. Bell are going to be really, really relevant to current events. And that doesn't speak well of the American uh, state of American politics. Yeah, that's terrible. I mean, you hear about that in terms of eugenics and racism and the Holocaust, you know, and like experiments on people without consent. And for our listeners, and maybe I'm sure you know, um, but informed consent, you know, Kave and I do it every day. We do procedures on patients. And what that concept is, is talking about 
the procedure and trying to ascertain that the patient has insight into what is going on and they have a judgment. They have judgmental capacity. They have the ability to understand. They understand the risks and the benefits and the alternatives, which includes doing nothing, yeah. you know, which includes not doing the procedure. And it's a conversation and it's not, uh, you know, a signed piece of paper. It's a conversation, you know, and that's an important point to make that these people clearly didn't have informed consent, you know. I'm also glad that you brought up the history uh, I mean, in America, I don't think people want to, we don't address it enough. Our role in really getting that whole eugenics movement kicked off and forced sterilizations of inmates in the past to uh, Puerto Rico. We have a, a pretty dark history when it comes to this. So I guess it's not that shocking that's still happening. But how... Yeah, typically targeting, you know, really vulnerable populations, especially black and brown uh, people. And, um, and that's obviously the case when you're talking about detention centers, when you're talking about the most vulnerable people. Um, and, and obviously, um, overwhelmingly people of color. How are they getting away with this? I mean, and I know it's a simply, that's a overstated, these stupid question, simple question, but how are they getting away with this? Yeah, so I, I don't think it is a stupid question because it is really shock. I think that when we hear such shocking revelations, there is an impulse of, well, if this had been going on, we would have heard about it by now because some of these, allega these allegations were from late 2019. How did this happen for so long? And a lot of it comes down to they're banking on people who are in really vulnerable positions not being comfortable speaking out. People who are, you know, first of all, in some cases, it's it can be if when there isn't documentation of surgical procedures, as was the case in at least one of these women, um, it could maybe even be a you know, um, he said she said, uh, which is insane. And when you're talking about surgery, um, there's the fact that people who are in custody are frightened about getting deported, and they might feel like if they come forward about about mistreatment in, in medical, um, in in provision of medical care. Uh, that they that they would be more likely to be deported, and that's not an irrational concern when we're talking about the conditions in which they're living. Um, and with respect to staff, there has been um, there there were some reports of retaliation against whistleblowers, and so I think that. Um, regardless of how this story um, pans out, you know, there have been marked um, reports of, of mistreatment and, and unsafe conditions that um, we really call attention to the need for whistleblower protections, whether talking about staff or, or, de or, um, or detainees. How many reports of um, for, for sterilization? I'm sure I'm sure there's many reports of um, inadequate or subadequate yeah. uh, medical care, but how many reports of this forced sterilization or forced surgeries or unknown type think, of surgery? Do you know? I think it was five, um, five, but then there were other cases. Of, but I'm not sure if that. I'm not sure if that includes procedures where there was uncertainty about what procedure had been done. So I'm not exactly sure if that tabulation was including explicitly um, hysterectomies or if that was also including um, procedures where there wasn't adequate informed consent and there was confusion afterwards. I think we'll find out more. As of from 2018, the ICE statement they put out said they'd only been two patients referred um, for any technique 
or a procedure close to this. Two but, patients were referred for unauthorized. Yeah. <laughs> I, but this these is reports, my referral. But no, I get it. Are, it's just a funny concept. But these reports are that there's actually probably even more than that. They even gave this doctor the, the nickname, the uterus collector. Yeah. That's sort of what he is referred to in, in, this, um, in this, this one camp. So yeah, a well, chill went down my spine when I read that. And, and it's true that usually when, once there's one report, you know, people generally feel more comfortable coming forward. And so we'll, I'm sure that we will hear, hear more accounts of, of what's going on. Well, so what's next now? Like who gets involved? Who represents these, you know, detained people who have no rights, no citizenship, no country maybe at this time? Like, is this a case? I mean, you know, um, law, you know, policy, you know, healthcare. What is the next step? Is it the ACLU? Like, do you know? I'm sure that the ACLU is going to be all over for this. Um, I, full disclosure, I donate to them monthly uh, in the name of, of Donald Trump and have a notification sent to the White House <laughs> um, uh, because I like to do good things, but with a little snarkiness. It's a very nice touch. But with respect to, to what's next, recently um, congressional leaders have called for an investigation. And so I think that that's going to be a really important step is, is investigating the wrongdoing and, and you know, sort of other um, actions more generally that are going on um, in these facilities. Um, so you know, one step is, is getting legal representation, but also um, really getting to the bottom of this. How did, it, how did these things happen? Um, for how long? How many people are affected? And how can we ensure accountability? Um, you know, one thing that, uh, that I think is worth noting is that this is a facility that's run by a private company. We've seen a lot of privatization of detention centers and prisons and things like that. And this is a company that owns, that runs um, three other detention centers um, in southern, uh, detention centers in three southern states. And so also thinking about, well, is this, is this an isolated case to this one detention center? Is this, is this prevalent among others that are run by this company? Is this prevalent beyond that. Um, these are all things that will be important to um, investigate in, through congressional hearings and, and other um, and things like that. Switching gears just a little bit, switching gears to another sort of COVID-related nightmare. You've written about an interesting perspective that I hadn't thought of yet, which is how COVID is affecting women's healthcare rights and their healthcare access. Can you explain a little bit about how certain groups have used COVID as an opportunity to affect women's rights negatively? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I'm really excited to be able to talk about this. So to be clear, um, all of the policies, none of the policies that were advanced are not currently in effect, but what had happened in 11 states was, uh, well, with COVID, you know, we saw that there was national guidance saying that we should delay non-essential or elective procedures. Um, the challenge was that what constitutes elective or non-essential uh, is not um, entirely objective. Um, and 
what ended up happening was in 11 states, um, and surprise, surprise, red states, um, they basically said, well, abortion is not essential. It's an elective procedure. Um, even though there's a time sensitive nature to it, you can't, you know, with, there are certain diagnostic tests that we might normally get, you know, every couple of years. Um, I get a thyroid ultrasound every you know, like two or three years or something like that, you know, pushing that off a few months, no big deal. Pushing off an abortion by six months, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, so these are things that really complicated accessing women's health care. And so then it ended up going into courts. And a lot of the, and a lot of these uh, cases ended up resulting in in courts blocking this. But essentially, uh, you know, for decades, really, uh, pro life groups have been have been pushing for for these abortion restrictions, often incremental. But we've seen some really striking um, uh, examples in the last few years where it was you know fetal heartbeat bans and things like that that courts have also um, uh, said were, were unconstitutional, but it's through this, I, through this lens of a non-essential or elective procedures that there's been this advancement of being able to, to restrict access to abortion in the name of preserving health services, preserving resources and PPE and things like that. Yeah, That's really I mean, interesting, the, the time sense of nature, like you mentioned, because I, I I'm not, that's not my wheelhouse, but I assume the earlier you do an abortion, the safer it is, the exactly. more effective it is. And then also, aren't also people on the far right, the ones that are the most upset about late term abortions? That yeah. And also, or, or, you know, wait, what, or, or the fictional term partial abortion or something. Partial yeah. like, abortion. I think yeah. Newt Gingrich made that up and I don't think he has a medical degree. But and yeah, you're saying that or the earlier, the safer, but the later the more illegal it becomes. This is a very time sensitive issue. It's and, like and not making only, it illegal. And not only that, but if the if the options, if you reduce the choice set from from early abortion to later abortion to rather early abortion, you know, or, you know, sort of the ideally timed abortion versus childbirth. Well, childbirth involves, you know, a lot more medical resources. It means that the woman is going to be going to the doctor more, more, more tests. Um, child, you know, childbirth is, is a more, you know, involved, um, you know, situation than a first trimester abortion is. And so you're going to be going through a lot more healthcare resources in addition to that. So, um, and one of the things that I found when I, when I conducted a nationwide study and a nationwide survey on, on how people have been reacting to these abortion restrictions was I also asked people if abortion became unavailable in your state how likely would you be to travel out of state for it and 42 percent said that they would be likely to travel out of state to obtain an abortion if they couldn't so not only is it encouraging either you know leading to potentially later and less safe abortion or un or illegal abortion which is much less safe than legal abortion potentially leading to more healthcare resources being used for for a pregnancy um, that's being carried to term but it can also prom promote greater travel in a pandemic and we really want to keep people at home that's a great point the travel component in a pandemic is something i hadn't thought about either um and you're talking about the cost of labor versus the cost of something really simple like a dnc di mm -hmm. dilation and curatage that's like a routine office procedure that the controversy is like you do not need by the way hospital privileges to get right. a lot of these things done but the cost to society and the cost to a hospital and the cost to a human being 
of a complication from an illegal abortion. Mm -hmm. You know, we all saw Dirty Dancing. We all know the consequences of an illegal, unsterile. I haven't seen Dirty Dancing. (gasps) Really? Wow. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Listeners. We're stopping the podcast right now. We're going to start. We're going to watch it right now together. (laughs) You guys, we're going to cut and paste this. So it sounds seamless to you, but we're watching it now. Okay, we're watching and and we're back. Wow, okay. wasn't that a good movie? So many <laughs> it was so points. good. I can't believe uh, that I went through my whole life without watching. I mean, you have it. To nobody see puts it. baby in a corner. Nobody, nobody puts, puts baby, baby in a corner. That, that hurt my heart like a little bit to hear that. But very importantly, the cost to society for a complication from an illegal or whatever you want to call it, like black market off the off the books um, abortion. I'm sure far outweighs anything that we've been talking about, you know? Especially when you think about the fact that if an abortion is early on enough, it could even just be a medication abortion. It's just that you have to go to an abortion provider. And so the resources that they're using, I've seen certainly um, can be quite, can be quite limited um, when you think about it. And so it's hard to really see when you consider that, the costs could aggregate whether from carrying a pregnancy to term or having an illegal abortion or having a later abortion. All of these costs um, exceed what, what we would normally expect to observe if we just kept abortion um, legal and, and safe, um, which is what we know outside of the context of COVID as well. Right. Um, and unfortunately, what we've seen, uh, you know, with this, with with COVID, is that some is that these eleven states uh, really made an effort to to use COVID as, as a restriction, as in, as a justification for these restrictions, which means that women are relying on courts to uh, to assert that they have this right to terminate a pregnancy. And as we know, uh, court judicial vacancies are getting filled pretty rapidly with Trump supporters who are not particularly in line with the idea of a woman having a right to terminate a pregnancy. Right, right. Speaking of that, so now (laughs) with the death of RBG, I mean, uh, what are we to expect? I mean, obviously, I think we all at this point assume there's going to be a new, that that he's going to appoint somebody regardless of whatever hypocrisy we may call out. Um, so how can we, ex- what are we to expect in the coming years regarding this? Is Roe v. Wade going to be uh, changed, altered, overturned? What, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Planned Parenthood, birth control? Except what's, what's happening? Tell me. Tell, it, tell us exactly what's going to happen. Everything. I mean, can we just, can I ask you personally, like how do you feel as someone who's an advocate for women's rights and a political junkie and you know, you've already cited like a Supreme Court case once on this episode alone, like this is your person, right? Like RBG is your, I assume your like end all be all role model. Like, are you, are you okay? (laughs) I'm okay. I definitely cried and listened to my sad Spotify playlist and drank some bourbon and, um, on Friday and, um, you know, and talked with my closest girlfriends and we were all just sort of, collectively mourning, um, you know, like a lot of us are. I think that, um, you know, fortunately, I, I, am, I tend to go more into anger mode than, than uh, heartbreak mode. So, you know. Lizzie understands that well. That's, Lizzie yeah, totally feels that. First of all, I can personally relate, but I also think America can relate, like what's, what's going on. Like, yeah. it's just twisted right now. It's happening. But it's, anyway. it's really, it's really bad. And, um, 
you know, I, I, you know, it sounds like it's likely going to be Amy Coney Barrett, who is replacing RBG. She is um, very Catholic. She is very um, anti-abortion. Um, these are going to be issues that are talked about a lot in the confirmation hearing. Uh, goes without saying. Um, my personal view, my, my, my long-term view, and this is something that I talk about with, a lot with my students when I teach reproductive rights law, um, is that the right wing does, I mean, they, they may overturn Roe now that, now that RBG is, is gone. Um, it's possible. Um, my sense is that they don't need to because the controlling decision is not Roe v. Wade. It's Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was a 1992 decision. And what Planned Parenthood v. Casey did was it said, state, Roe v. Wade in, um, is technically affirmed. States can impose their own restrictions as long as they don't pose an undue burden to the, to the, uh, the woman. Now, uh, because the Supreme Court didn't want to make things easy on us, they didn't define what an undue burden is. And so what all of the litigation that we've seen lately has really come down to is, is this in the interest of preserving health and safety, or is this in the interest of imposing an undue burden in the path of the woman who's seeking an abortion? Mm -hmm. And so what the Supreme Court and abortion uh, opponents can do is essentially try to um, do death by a thousand cuts and essentially just make undue burden meaningless and say, oh, well, you know, in, an eight-week abortion ban isn't, isn't an undue burden because there's still a couple weeks where she might know that she's pregnant or, you know, think, or it's not really an undue burden to have to drive X number of miles or it isn't really an undue burden to have to get parental consent um, and it isn't really an undue burden to have to get an ultrasound, um, even though, it, you know, it could be invasive. Um, uh, and so all of these things can essentially be sort of chipped away at. And so that's, that's how I think that abortion is going to be eroded in practice rather than really on paper. Um, but I could very well be wrong and we could see um, the explicit overturning of Roe. Because Roe v. Wade is, I think, fundamentally about privacy, right? It's not actually about abortion. Is that fair? Is that true? Well, they say that a woman has the right to terminate a pregnancy in the first trimester, but after, once the pregnancy advances, the state's interest in life versus, um, in the woman's life versus potential life essentially shifts. And, and things have gotten complicated um, as we've developed scientifically because the point of viability has changed as well. And so there have been a lot of moving targets um, with respect to how we value the rights and the rights and life and well-being of the woman versus the potential life. It's such a catch-22, isn't it? That like technology is so amazing and we could do such incredible things. And yet you ask the question sometimes like, should we be doing this, you know? And I feel like that's the case for fetuses born at like, you know, 20 weeks or 22 weeks or whatever, you know, I I hope every, you know, everyone flourishes and does well and gains weight, but we just know the truth of it isn't always there. So it's a wonderful thing that we have this science and technology that medicine has to offer. And yet sometimes it really um, does a great disservice to certain people's like rights and decisions. So absolutely. And of course, in the, um, in the uh, um, abundant hypocrisy that is the pro-life movement, you know, we've seen uh, women, pregnant women in custody have miscarriages um, or have stillbirths um, in custody 
custody beyond um, and with one, at least one of these uh, stillbirths beyond the point of viability. But then eight, um, uh, uh, Homeland Security said, oh, well, this isn't really a death in custody. And so they're really trying, the administration's really right. trying so to arguing. have cake and eat it too. Right. Brings us back to the first thing we talked about, which is where, like, I wonder where these people stand on the concept of forced sterilization. Um, getting back to that initial subject, I've been racking my brain trying to think, like, what's the most, if we were to give, like, a very kind, very generous explanation for what's happening there, and if, if, if we were saying that it wasn't this racist, eugenics sort of approach to sterilization of these people, then... The only thing we're left with is medical negligence, medical gross medical incompetence. Yeah, I think the most fairy tale version is like this doctor wants to do right by these people and operate on them in the right way, but he's just the oh, a really bad surgeon who just needs to learn a lot more. So instead of taking out like the ovarian cyst, he oops, he took out her fallopian tube in her uterus. Like I don't think oh, that's the truth. It's not just good if that's, that's the most generous right? approach. That's the most Pollyanna <laughs> view you can have of this, right? Like that this is just a student who needs a little bit more learning it, and coaching. Her appendix needs to come out. I didn't know the appendix was there and then there was the, <laughs> the uterus. <laughs> All this Michigas. They're all just so time. close together. It's know. really it's really hard in there, guys. I don't know if you've noticed. It's there's a lot of organs. And they're, just, yeah. they're all so crammed in there in women. Yeah. Oh, there's just there are just crammed. so many organs. They didn't think it could be possible. Boy, did we prove them wrong. Mm. Yeah, I don't think there's any positive spin to this, but no. I appreciate you do, thinking about that, Kaveh. That's very kind of you. I try to. I, mean, I do think that I do think that the incompetence, um, just just general general incompetence spin. Um, you know, there is some there is some merit to that. Um, so one one interest one noteworthy statistic was that um, miscarriage and thinking about the quality of medical care or lack thereof um, is uh, miscarriages among uh, uh, migrants um, in detention went up under the Trump administration, and so and we so we've seen we've seen evidence of of poor care in in custody of of pregnant women and there have been um reports of complications and things like that and so obviously those things don't rise to the level of performing surgery without consent but it does sort of paint a picture of medical negligence where theoretically um you know i don't think that there's a reason why we should expect to see more pregnancy complications and more miscarriages um under one president versus another other than the quality of care that's being provided it's um it's very strange it's very discharge it's really enraging it's really disheartening it's um and dystopian. just a real just a it's very dystopian and just a disregard for it, it really hammers home this idea that some lives matter more than others in, yeah. in the act of, of this administration and the fact that these people are poor, are people of color, are immigrants, you know, not not from the United States, all these outsiders, you know, this this rhetoric has really reinforced this otherness and this idea of undeservingness of, of real care. Yeah. And social media is, as you both just said, dystopian. Um, social media is invoking the handmaid's tale in a, in a lot of these scenarios that's happening, you know, um, all of it's just controlling women, controlling their body, whether it's removing their uteruses, whether it's banning abortions. I, 
to me, it's still just so confusing how the government ever got involved in, in a woman's body. Like, I'm just so confused about it. I don't understand it. It's all, you know, I think in the 1980s, Reaganism, evangelicals, voting, power, and it's just nobody belongs in a woman's body without their consent. Miranda, believe it or not, we, we used to be totally apolitical. <laughs> absolutely apolitical i have a lot of friends who um who i grew up with who i kind of figured would vote correctly but we never talked politics and now they're like trump has radicalized me and oh yeah totally wait miranda okay yes good. miranda what would you do if your friend who's super liberal, super blue, super progressive. I don't even want to say blue, like just progressive and forward thinking about the climate and women's rights and racial equality and things that just seem like it should be human nature, right? Your friend mm -hmm. says that she's dating a guy who is going to vote for Trump. What do uh -huh. you do in this circumstance? Do you tell support her in this way or do you maybe... Blacklist yeah, her? What happens? <laughs> I I don't I don't blacklist people because of who they date. Um, I would ask why, and I would ask sort of how that's how it works. I mean, I feel like I when I'm with um, when I'm dating someone, I need to be rooting for the same person on election night, and more importantly, I need to know that they care about just basic same values as me you know caring about the poor caring about people of color lgbt women um you know all of all of this i mean um you know these are things that i care about and i'm not gonna I'm not gonna bite my tongue in my own apartment let's put it that way you hear um, that you so hear that women it's up to you do not have sex with republicans it you have the power <laughs> women that's it's my up to you. <laughs> I, I accidentally had sex with a libertarian once, and that was that was a problem. Oh, but, God. Um, Did you get checked immediately um, afterwards? I hope. I hope. Because... <laughs> it was accidental so sex I'm, or accidental libertarian? Or both. Libertarianism. <laughs> accidental libertarianism. Um, I was in my 20s. We, don't, we do dumb things in our 20s. We, we move on. But, um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I think that if my friend were, were dating a Republican, uh, not not just a Republican, but a Trump supporter. I I would have a lot of, I would there would be a question mark. I I know that none of my close friends would do that, but um, but I yeah. I would have a lot of questions and sort of ask like, do you really want to be with someone who doesn't respect your body and your right. own ability to make your own healthcare decisions? Right. But I also you know try not to guilt people about you know their own yeah. relationship. Well, as long as as long as they're happy and respected and treated well, I try not to, you know, cry, but it well, was very difficult for me to understand dating someone who doesn't believe I should be able to make my own medical decisions. Right. We appreciate that, um, that your, your respect and your lack of judgment, but, <laughs> but we heard the star or asterisk or something near <laughs> that friend. We, we know that person's not sitting at at the at the a-list table maybe B &B. They're, not, they're not coming to my election night party <laughs> exactly fair enough well miranda thank you so much um we really appreciate you coming on and talking politics with us i mean we can't wait to just get back to we we can't wait till the point when we can get back to just making poop jokes and not talking about politics that much <laughs> but we have to talk about it now and we appreciate you coming on to talk about it with thank us thank you so much for where, having me. where can people find you 
Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Miranda Yaver. Uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. You can find me there. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank, Thank you, you for Miranda. coming on. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I did a stand-up routine where I talked about how I want to incorporate my uterus so that Republicans will finally stop regulating it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, like, uterus ink. Yeah. It, it will only get 80 cents on the dollar in corporate <laughs> rates. But yeah. the Supreme Court said uter that uterus ink has protected rights to free speech and it's got shit to say about Donald oh, Trump. <laughs> that's a great idea. No, we it's totally... To, we just need to go corporate. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.